welcome to the Weird Warriors podcast. On this podcast, we will be covering the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. I'm Max. I'm Rich. And in this episode, we are going to take a look at Weird War Tales number one, which was uh, cover dated September to October 1971 on sale July 1st. 1971 and the price of this book when it came out was 25 cents a little blurb says only 25 cents on the cover now speaking of that cover we have i think one of the best logos of any comic series i've ever read with the word weird outlined in bold and each letter is just filled with a pile of bodies it's pretty macabre actually for a for a series that came out in 71 i think you know, so, so you have weird, and then war is just in red below that. And then the feature illustration on the cover is a skeleton wearing nothing but a military coat, helmet, and boots. No pants, which we'll talk about, I bet. But um, and holding a rifle with a bunch of uh, scared American soldiers uh, scattered on the ground. The skeleton, of course, is wearing uh, Nazi regalia, and it is drawn expertly by the living legend, uh, Joe Kubert, who um, I think does many, many, many covers for this series, if not the majority of them. Joe Kubert actually, I think, did the covers of like all DC War books, whether he, he drew a single panel on the inside or not. And Joe Kubert usually did the covers for, for all these books. And quite well, I must say. Yeah, I mean, if you wanted to sell your books, um, <laughs> really any time in history, but especially over at DC in the '70s, you pretty much just got, you know, you got Joe to come over and and crank one out for you. And I think he had a position in the company at some point. I don't know if he was ever art director, but he did definitely have a position at DC um, for a bit where he was making decisions like this and not just taking jobs. So yeah, we have that, we have that cover. We have DC weird war tales also on the cover uh, in the upper left corner inside the shape of a tombstone uh, titles for the three stories contained within. And then a little memo, like a card that supposedly was dropped onto the cover that says official memo. And I am going to mess up the pronunciation of that first word, but it says, Gefreiter Hans Mueller died two days ago, or so he thought. You actually got that pretty good, I would have to say. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, the only way I know how to do any of that is probably from bad movies where they got a lot of the other stuff wrong. But hey, we're also reading comic books where they got a lot, a lot of stuff wrong, which we'll get to. <laughs> So what we're going to do here is synopsize different parts of the book and then discuss them as we go on. So when you uh, first get into this series, you, so you first open the book, we have a framing sequence. And it's about four pages long. Now, the reason there's a framing sequence is, uh, as people may be aware, and if not, we'll, we'll let you know, the first, I think, what is it, seven issues of this series are largely comprised of reprint material. Yeah, that's, that's what I got out of it. So what they did was Joe Kubert himself, at least in this issue, uh, wrote and drew a little framing sequence to try to stitch these stories together into one loose narrative. So where we start out is in 1944, winter. 
The damp cold invades the trees, condenses on the rifle, grips the man. And so what we have here is a, a lone soldier kind of a staggering through the woods in the cold alone. And then a shell is fired and he's buried in exploded debris and left for dead. He recovers enough to stumble in pain until he happens upon a strange house in the middle of nowhere and he passes out. And this old man picks up the unconscious soldier and brings him into the house. Then there's a panel where the soldier has a nightmare specifically about the trees in the forest growing mouths and trying to eat him, which I don't think we follow up on, but, you know, great visual. And, you know, hey, yeah, Joe (laughs) Hubert, man, I'm not going to argue with it. So when the young soldier awakens, he's laying in a bed he's been taken care of. And the old man bids him to rest and listen to his stories of the many things he's seen. And in the drawing, when they close in on the old man, his eyes are tiny little skulls. So it's like, you know, probably just symbolic, but that's the first hint of anything even kind of supernatural that we get here. Um, We don't get an actual title. Uh, But in Mike's Amazing World of Comics, where I got a lot of the data for this book, they call this intro, Let Me Tell You the Things I've Seen, which is part of the final word balloon before we uh, before we get into the then you know, the first uh, short story here. So what do we think about this framing sequence? Well, like you said, it was uh, done by Joe Kubert. And this was primo, you know, top of this game. Joe Kubert. This was, you know, he didn't get any better than this. The inking, the shading, the look of terror on uh, this sole scout's face as he's walking through the woods. And then just, you know, the smoke rising off the debris after the shell fires on him. He's all, he's, you know, sweat's pouring down his face. He's in pain. He's dragging himself to the house. I mean, just, just <laughs> bottom line, Joe Kubert, just boom. I mean, he is without a doubt my my favorite uh, one of my favorite comic artists and i am very very grateful i had an opportunity to meet this man and get his signature on a bunch of the old classic war books including uh the first and last issue of sergeant rock and uh, the first appearance of uh, unknown soldier so now did you meet joe just the one time um yes actually he was at a a comic-con one of the newer comic-cons i went down there expressly to meet him yeah, and it was actually, it was actually <laughs> uh, a unique circumstance because his two boys, Ad, A- Andy and Adam, who who do um, comic work with him, were there at the table with him. So I got to meet all three of them. I got all their signatures on one book or another. Heck, uh, Star- Sergeant Rock four twenty two. That was the last book, and all three of them did work on it. And oh. even even they were making fun of, of the tagline on the top of the cover of the books, so like. Cubert, triple threat, Joe, Andy, Adam. And they're like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> but all three of them signed it. So that was, that was, that was a great meet. Um, but uh, yeah, Joe is, Joe's art is just phenomenal. I mean, he is. Yeah, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, Rick Fulham goes to meet uh, people at a comic book convention. He does it right. You're not just going to meet like this one Cubert. You're going to meet all three of them. You're going to have a book all three of them worked on and then have a laugh about it. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, you have pretty uh, pretty good luck with meeting people at conventions. I'd say I've whenever I go to a show, I mean, like 
I don't recall what exactly I said in the last episode, but my collection is getting to the point where I'm not going to find the stuff that I'm looking for in local stores anymore. I've got to go to the big cons or something like that or go to eBay or whatever. But, but whenever I go to a big con, I look at the guest list and I see who's going to be there. And if it's just like, if there's some guy like, hey, I haven't met uh, Garth Ennis yet and he's going to be there, blah, I'll go through my collection and I'll find two or three books or just to hope to hopefully get to the front of the line and have him sign one of them, you know, or John Romita Jr. or Jim Lee or whatever else like that. I mean, uh, the show that I met uh, Joe Kubert at, uh, uh, Joe Simon was at. It was one of the last shows he was at you know, before he died. And I happened to have a Captain America on I, you, know, you want to talk about getting lucky, holy God. <laughs> so, yeah, that's I, I do my homework before I go to a con. Because especially these the, the greats, they're all leaving us. And there's not very many of the old timers left anymore, unfortunately. Yeah, I've never been big on getting signatures, really. Um, you know, which kind of limits you when you're meeting a writer. I mean, one of the few signatures I have is um, from just a couple of years ago. Jim Shooter signed a, a copy of Secret Wars because he literally had a box of books he just he had written next to his you know chair. Because you know, as a writer, what's he going to do? Yeah, he's not going to do a sketch for you. But speaking of, you know, writers that can, you know, can 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 draw and do it all. You 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 know talked about the art and this framing sequence, and you know, for me, the best part of this is, you know, there's certainly plenty of words on these pages, plenty of word balloons and captions. They're not necessary though. I think you know, it's just the style back then that you had to have more words on the page. But you could look at just the raw drawings on these four pages and get it you wouldn't be missing a beat you know even where they close in on the old man's face in the end you'd get the feeling like okay this guy has something to say and we're about to hear what it is you know so he certainly used the captions and the word balloons i I, i'm not sure how much writing he had done before this issue himself but it almost just feels like he just felt this was the style, but the drawing is so good. The storytelling is so clear. You don't need hardly any of the words, but now that that story is over, <laughs> you know, we're going to, we, we go to the next page and you still see, I think the same drawing of that old man's head down at the bottom of the page with the skulls for eyes. And he is introducing the first reprinted story of this issue. It's called the fort, which did not return. And that one was reprinted from, was reprinted from GI Combat 86, published in 1961. So if you want to do the honors and sum up this story, take us there. Well, this was the cover story from GI Combat 86. The, the first panel that you see is actually on the cover of that comic book. And the title of that one was actually The Secret of the Fort, which did not return. Why they felt the need to change the title is beyond me, but there we go. Um, it was written by the late, great Bob Conagher, as so, so, so many of these DC War stories were, and illustrated by Russ Heath. Now, I was just jonesing all over uh, Joe Kubert's art a few seconds. I was going to say, you don't, you don't know much about Russ Heath, do you? <laughs> I, well, Russ Heath is another one of those individuals that I had the incredible honor to meet. Matter of fact, I actually uh, had him sign my copy of Weird War Tales number one because he did the art in this first reprint story. And one of the things that I've always loved about Russ Heath is his phenomenal attention to detail. I mean, if the plot called for an ME-109, it was an ME-109. If there was a Sherman tank driving around in the bushes, it was a Sherman tank. He drew whatever 
the plot called for. And that was rare in an era where the script said, hey, we need an ME-109. And the artist, artist said, hey, that's nice. I'm going to draw a Stuka Dive Bomber instead. I mean, they, in their defense, these guys had to draw whatever they had reference material for. There was no internet. You know, they, you know, what do you expect them to do, Rich? Go to the library and actually do research? But yeah, Russ's style. I mean, I, I, I met him at a couple of cons. I got lots and lots of books uh signed by him and um i'll tell the i'll tell the the one story real quick i needed one the last issue of gi combat that i needed was um it was the origin story of the haunted tank so it would because you know how it goes the origin story the first one that's like hey we can get a lot of money for this one so it was like three figures i'd never spent that much money on a comic book in my life but it was the last one that i needed i'm like oh man i'm kicking it around back and forth in my head i'm like if i finally realized you know what russ heath did the art on this russ heath is four tables away i can have russ heath sign this book and i can justify this expense so i'm like ah, all right so i show up the money and i buy the book and i go down to russ heath's table and he just looks at me he's like how much is this such a <laughs> 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 I'm like, Sam, right away. <laughs> he, was, he was a character. I, mean, I, I had a couple of interesting conversations with him. He like, there's one book I was having him sign, and it was like a weird shaped uh, panel. He's just like, you know how I got the shape of that panel? I traced my coaster. <laughs> it's all about resourcefulness. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah. So his his style is is very clean. It's very crisp. It's very accurate. I've, I've always been a huge, huge fan of uh, Russ's art from from day one. But um, in other way, that's uh, enough of the fanboy. Let's uh, let's get back to uh, the story in question here. I was going to say the drawing and the first panel here has quite a bit of detail in it. Oh yes, fort which did not return. It is the uh, cockpit of a B-17. There's, there's bullet holes in the pilot seats. The instruments are smashed. The windscreen wind is shot out and there's nobody in the cockpit as it's bearing, barreling down on what appears to be an oil refiner. And there's a word balloon coming up out of one of the pilot's headsets. That's the bombardier to pilot lining up on the target. Watch your drift. Hold it. Hold it. Very intense scene as the, as the aircraft. Yeah, turns. like if you're looking at the panel, that like you said, that dialogue is coming out of an empty headset. So somewhere there's a bombardier that is yelling into what looks to us like an empty cockpit. No one's no one's flying the plane. Yeah, where did they go? So you turn the page, and the actual story starts with the bombardier returning to his base after a long journey, you know, presumably after having been uh, shot down, being rescued from the by the resistance forces of wherever he ended up. He's waving to you know other crew members from other birds as he comes back in. You know, the other airmen come running up to him. It's like, hey, what happened and everything? And he's like, I, I can't. He's thinking to himself, I just, I can never tell you what really happened. It's just, you wouldn't believe it. And they see the look on his face and they, you know, they've seen that look before. So they just leave him alone with his thoughts and everything. And the story starts to flash back to when the bombardier and his crew boarded their B-17, which was nicknamed the Mother Hen. Yeah, you get that uh, flashback, um, the old school flashback where the panel border changes to like a fluffy cloud kind of border. And you know, you know, service members there they they get really attached to to their plane as each as each crew member boards the plane. He he tap he, he taps the nose and it's like the call pilot's like you'll get us there, mother hen. The navigator is just like I'll lay out the course and I know you'll follow it right down the line. And the bombardier is like you're going to lay TNT eggs right down there, smokestacks, mother hen. 
And the waist gunners were like, we won't let those big bad fighters near you, mother hen. And the tail gunners like, I'll keep them off of you, mother hen. It's all the crew members, you know, getting their lines in and everything. And they all have to say mother hen at the end. They all yep. have to say the name of the plane. Say, gee, I wonder what the name of the plane is. I wonder if they like it. <laughs> so uh, the, uh, the, the aircraft takes off. Nice full, full panel, of, you know, filled with B-17s heading off towards the target. And the uh, the mother hen is, you know, heading on towards the target. The, the, the navigator is plotting the points. The plane gets right there, right on time. Uh, the waste gunners are checking their quadrants. The tail gunner is checking his quadrants. Everything is going all fine and dandy. And the enemy radar picks them up, and the enemy fighters take off. And the German anti-aircraft fire opens up. And the flak is so thick, you can get out and walk on it. And it's, it's, it's bad. And planes start going down. You know, uh, Brooklyn Bell gets blown apart. The powerhouse P2 engines are on fire. You know, as, it's, as it goes into like a 45 degree dive and starts heading towards the ground. The crews, the they all said those names so many times. How can anything bad happen? <laughs> you know, the fighters are swarming all over them, and uh, one by one, the crew members uh, get taken out by uh, the by enemy fighters you know the tail gunner gets a gets a plane away one of the waste gunners gets a plane but the but the one of the planes that he gets explodes so close to the uh, the side of the fortress the shrapnel comes blasting into the fuselage and takes out both of the uh, waste gunners and the navigator goes running back to check and yeah there's there's a hole that you could drive a truck through in the side of the plane then both the waste gunners are gone and uh, so the navigator has to, goes goes running back to his position. The, the mission's continuing. Uh, Lucky Lulu is you know gets blown out of the sky by enemy fighters. Uh, the damage that the B-17 has suffered is severe enough that they're becoming a straggler. So they're on their own. That the enemy fighters are just focusing their fire on this one lone bird now. And the tail gunner gets one enemy fighter, and another one comes in and takes out the tail gunner. And then the, there's an explosion up in the cockpit, and both pilots are wounded. And a fighter on a head-on uh, strafing pass finishes off the two wounded crew members in the cockpit. The navigator climbs up to the top turret, engages the fighter, blows him out of the air. But the navigator dies from his wounds afterwards. So, yeah, it's down to the bombardier. And the bombardier doesn't know he's the only one that's left. But he doesn't know that, like I said. So the bombardier is calling into the into uh, his throat mic. You know, bombardier to pilot approaching the target. There it is. Those giant size oil tanks. You're taking mother hen right over it, Captain. Hold it, hold it, hold it. And that scene is real interesting because, the like the, the beginning panel said, it's an open cockpit. The words are coming out of an abandoned headset. Yeah, we have, that, we have that panel where it's, it's that moment we opened on, like in the moment in the movie that starts, you know, uh, at one point in time, and then obviously you flash back and you're wondering when you're going to catch up to it. Well, we're here. And it's not a lazy copy and paste. This is a different drawing than the, uh, the one yeah. they opened with. And then, you know, bombs away, and there goes, there goes the payload, and it, you know, it blasts uh, the target uh, fiery bits. And uh, the plane, you know, heads back through the acres of exploding flak, heading back towards base. And the angrily buzzing fighters who couldn't understand why a ship which didn't return their fire somehow managed to stagger out of their sights. Because the, the enemy fighters are, are, are zooming in on it, you know, shooting it up more, putting more holes into it. And the plane is just banking and swerving away, but no one's shooting back. And finally, the uh, the bombardier goes, comes up to the cockpit and he's like, you know, he's just stunned. He's like, how? Who took this ship over? How can a mother hen keep on going? And he just checks out every fort and every inch of the fort and just sees he's the only one left. 
And as it heads towards the Dutch coast, he just bails out and says, goodbye, guys. And the last he sees as he parachutes down towards the ground is the, is the fort you know, you know, disappearing over the horizon with smoke trailing from one of his engines. And he's like, take good care of them. Mother hen. Yeah, and then we catch up to present day in the story on the last page. Even even after the present, like he's ready to go on another mission. He's being re- assigned to another crew. Yeah, he's all you know. He's you know. You have to imagine what being the lone survivor of of a of a, of a bomber that ideally had ten people aboard it. In this case, seven. But we'll, we'll get into that later. Being being a sole survivor, you're going to have survivor skill. And he's he, you can tell you get the looks on his face. He's like he he just doesn't know where to go. He's just like, what can I tell the guy this of uh, this new crew I'm being assigned to? What can I tell them that a ship without a pilot took the over without a pilot at the controls took me over the target and then turned and flew out to sea with the rest of the crew. It's like, no, I, I could never tell them what really happened. I would just keep doing my job in another ship. And as I was doing it a week later, bombs away. He, he just became a replacement bombardier of a new crew. But on this mission, he can imagine that Mother Hen is in the formation with him. And just like, you know, there she is. Here, come back to see how we're doing. Yeah, and in that final panel, we get the little circle at the end with the catchphrase that I associate very heavily with a lot of the old, uh, especially Cubert helmed war comics I read off of you with the phrase, make war, no more. Yep. It was a big thing they did back in the 70s. They, they threw that out there a lot. On a yeah, lot. Do you, you must know where that started. Like, when did they first start putting that in the DC war book? <sighs> Uh, but to the best of your knowledge, where do you think that began? I probably knew at some point where exactly that came from. I mean, you got the, this, this started, I think it was like, I think it was like the early, late 60s, early 70s, as I think when they started doing that. And it may have been a not so subtle reference to what was going on in Vietnam. Um, yeah, comics are nothing if not subtle. <laughs> But, um, well, you know, the, the, I, always, I always preferred the DC War books to the Marvel War books or the Charlton War books or whatever. I just always liked the How dare you, sir. You speak bad of Charlton. <laughs> I, was just, I always preferred them, you know. And, and, and there, I've read a lot of, like, really, really powerful war books, you know, out of DC over the years. And but there have been plenty of stories where it's just it's it's a waste, you know. Make war no more. It 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 it, it gets it gets the message across. Yeah, it, I I definitely prefer that. And and speaking of the Marvel contrast, we'll get into the actual advertisements later. But I want to talk about this house ad that takes up the last third of the page here. It says, "Bigger and better, only twenty five cents." The magic of Kirby on sale july 13th and it's for a new issue of mr miracle that's about to come out so there's that contrast right there like the the melancholy dc meditation on you know the futility of war and then the magic of kirby don't ask just buy it you know right at the bottom of the page so you know as far as um what I thought of, of this first story, because, you know, I know that's what we're all dying to know here. I, of course, I'm, you know, I've never uh, read this before I, I, you know, got this back issue and, and read it for the podcast, but I've always been impressed with Russ, Russ Heath's art, particularly what jumped out to me this time around was how his art straddles the line between what I think of as comic book art and newspaper strip art and i'm talking specifically about let's see the uh you know the second page the first page after the splash third panel the close-up of the bombardier's face now if that's not a newspaper strip adventure hero's face 
I I've never seen one. You know the square Superman. Yeah, the squarest <laughs> jaw, the five o'clock shadow, Superman. But if but Superman, if he um you know actually yeah, hand shaved for a few days. It, you know the Superman that's having a couple shots of whiskey in that bad Superman sequel. You know, the, yeah, the evil Superman at the bar, but. <laughs> But, you know, but still kind of rugged and noble, just like this is like, you know, I don't know, like your Mark Trail or mixed with a little Buck Rogers. But that that, you know, that kind of hybrid art style that Heath has is on display here, where to me, there's, you know, something that's obviously drawn for a comic book page, but with the illustrative style of a newspaper strip. So I really, really enjoyed that. The other thing that stood out to me as someone who I I generally like stories, um, you know, for characters, you know, I'm, I'm a character motivation kind of person, but in these little short stories, you're not going to get much of that. And in this one, you don't even get any names. None of these people have names. They just have their position on the plane, the co-pilot, the navigator, the bombardier, and that's it. No yeah. one's called anything. And then they're all dead. You know, it might be the odd rank reference, you know, but yeah, yeah. even even the even the waste gunners are saying, you know, your mother hadn't per starboard cats per port, but I dig you. I'm like, yeah, it's like, come on, these guys <laughs> give us a name. Yeah, you don't even at least get like the salty military nicknames they would have. They don't have time for that. They've got like a handful of pages. And at the end, all of them but one are going to be dead. So we have, you know obviously it's it's short stories like i said they don't have time for that but what we have here and one of the things i'm interested in finding out as i go through these earlier issues is how fast did the elements of the supernatural get introduced into these stories because reading this first issue it's a little tamer in that regard than i remember it when i came in around issue 68 as a kid because here we have a plane that apparently flew itself over a target turned around and left and went out to sea by itself um, with no one piloting it. So there's there's certainly a hint of a supernatural element there, but you really just have the bombardier's word for it. And at the end, he does he see the ghost of the plane or is he just imagining things? It's all kind of left up to you. So the supernatural element here is maybe present, maybe not. And even if it is present, it's it's certainly mild. There's no actual ghost or demons or anything involved like I remember from the later issues. So that's something I, I'm just going to be interested in keeping track of as we go on. So that kind of you know, wraps up um, the fort, which did not return. Do you have any closing thoughts about it or should we get on to what's, uh, what's wrong with this story? Oh, I think we can launch into Killjoy was here. That's right. We are going to have a segment on the show called, as Rich just said, Killjoy was here, where he's going to come in at the end and pick out at least one of the more egregious errors in uh, you know, history or military reference that, that they got wrong in these stories, if there is one. So without further ado, Killjoy, take it away. Okay, well, first, uh, a little bit of backstory. Um, during World War II, there was a, a mythical American super soldier named Kilroy who fought on every front of the war. He was, it was uh, Kilroy was here, would be scrawled on uh, damaged buildings, wrecked hulls, carved in trees, and usually it was accompanied with a weird little animated figure of a, of a top of a head, eyes, and a nose peering over a wall. 
and yeah, very menacing figure. Yeah, no, or not. <laughs> and it became uh, such a such a part of the experience. I mean, Killjoy fought on every front of of the war for the American uh, with the American forces. And it became such a part of the American experience that when the, when the World War II Memorial was built in Washington, D.C., the, uh, the Kilroy was here graffiti was actually added to it in two little places hidden in the back. as kind of like an in-joke to the World War II veterans. Now, people not in on the joke would see it and be like, oh, my God, this is terrible. Someone, someone vandalized the World War II Memorial and had to be told, no, 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 no. It, 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 it's an in-joke. You know, World War II vets get it. it, it's, it it's, it's a funny. So we have to play, do the play on words. You have to do the Kilroy was here to kill Joy was here. I have to ruin the fun. You know, about, you have to find something that was wrong in this piece of escapism. Right. Plus, you're just, uh, you know, you're just a total killjoy. So it fits. Yeah. <laughs> and there'll be some stories where I will, will nothing will lunge out of me. And there'll be other stories where it's just like, man, how much time do I have? So I was going to say, we have Russ Heath on deck here. So there must be absolutely no mistakes, right? Uh, well, <laughs> I say, you know, usually, you know, unfortunately, you know, Russ must have been off his game a little bit on this one because the script called for Fock Wolf 190s and you drew the aforementioned ME109s, which is, I know, I don't, you don't know how many kids reading this comic book would know the difference. Oh, so you didn't just mention that at random earlier. <laughs> but, um, but there's that. And um, we were also mentioning before that uh, seven crew members were mentioned by name. Uh, climbing into the fortress. Although in this one panel, they show eight people. But usually, uh, early, uh, a B-17 would have a crew of 10, especially early in the war when they didn't have fighter escort. And they would, uh, later in the war, when they had fighter escorts, they would take one of the waste gunners out to save weight, you know, put another bomb in the bomb bay, a few more gallons of fuel, whatever. But that would still be, you know, nine or 10 people. But in, in this story that he drew here, they, they only ID'd seven people. They, they showed eight in this one panel, but later on in the script, they show every, every gun position you know, blasting away, you know, the, the ball turret gunner, which wasn't named, the top turret gunner, which wasn't named, <laughs> uh, the radio man, which wasn't named. But th that's something like that. You could probably, you know, Bob Conner could probably get uh, some of that you know, thrown at his feet also. You know, that's, I would have to say that's, that's nitpicky stuff, actually. I mean, I, I, I hold Russ Heath in such high regard, you know, when he does make the odd mistake it it i'm sorry it lunges out at me personally because he didn't usually make it said mistakes so. yeah obviously i don't have that historical context like i didn't know how many people are normally on a bomber crew or whatever but what did stand out even to me is they only point out i think like three people that their job talks about firing guns and then later on there's a panel where one of the bombers is firing back at the fighters swarming around it and i swear there's like nine gun placements firing from that plane yeah and i'm like well that's somebody's got some levers or pulleys or something you the, know. the bombardier and the navigator if they weren't actively engaged in their jobs would have guns in the nose that they could fight back with. Yeah, this plane looks like a porcupine, though, <laughs> panel, just with, you know, gun barrels sticking out all sides of it. It looks like, you know, from the last Starfighter from the 80s when that spaceship just spins around, there's the Death Flower or whatever, and there's lasers coming out of every point. Yeah, you, you, that you stood at, out to me, even. 
Yeah, you, you look at this, at the one particular frame that is, I think is the one that you're talking about, the top turret's blasting away with its 250s, the radium is blasting away with his one, the, the waist gunners are firing, the tail gunners are firing, belly gun, the, the chin turret, you know, the two cheek guns are firing. You know, again, if you, ah, cheek a, guns. if you want to be a little bit of a nitpicker, the, uh, the, I, th I believe it was usually the bombardier that would fire the, uh, the chin turret. It was a remote control position that he would operate the levers from, from a position in the nose to uh, deter head-on fighter attacks. He couldn't do that and shoot one of the, one of the cheek guns. There, there, there was like, there were, they were called cheek guns for a reason. There was like, there was a small little position um, just back from the plexiglass nose a little bit on both sides that would have a 50 caliber machine gun sticking out of it. Because one of the vulnerable points of early models of B-17 was that was dead on. If you if you made a head-on attack on a B-17, that was that was its vulnerable spot. So it, it took him a couple of models for someone to finally figure that out and start adding machine guns to the to the nose of the plane so it could actually defend itself. Well, that sounds like a fun process. But the uh, the cheek guns, they like they, again, like I said, the bombardier and or navigator could use those weapons if they weren't actively engaged in you know their paying job. But all three of these positions are blasting away right now. So I have kind of like the mental image where like the bombardier is using the, the, the shooting the, the, uh, the chin turret. And, you know, the navigator is kind of like astride the nose, like with like one hand on each 50, like <laughs> not even aiming at anything, just shooting. All right. Well, you ruined my chance to make much more of a cheap joke out of the term cheek guns. So I think we'll just uh, we'll move on to the next story, which is a short <laughs> little little three pager called the story behind the cover. So it's not technically uh, a framing sequence, but it it's 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 part of that bit of new material that Joe Kubert wrote and drew for the issue. So we have a little three pager that literally is going to do like the title says, and this one does actually have a title, you know, on the top, you know, of the first page, the story behind the cover, and um, you know what we have going on in it here so you remember the cover has this skeleton wearing uh you know military clothes but no pants. German great coat yeah german great coat no pants boots helmet he's got a rifle and he's attacking and scaring the bejesus out of some american soldiers so um this little three-page filler is going to tell us the story behind that cover so what we have here, um, I've mentioned that, you know, a lot of the existing stories here are reprinted from older books. Well, this section, these three pages were reprinted later in Sergeant Rock 401, published in 1985. Now, if you remember how the heck they used these three pages in that issue, that's great. If not, I will move on. Um. It just seems like these would be three pages out of nowhere in a later issue of Sergeant. I will, I will, you know, full, you know, full disclosure. I, um, I did not know that this was actually a reprint. I thought this was just something that Joe Kubert had just gone. Hey, oh, he did. He did. This was reprinted later. Oh, in 401. Okay. Got in it, got 401. It. So I'm wondering how the heck did they use these three pages later in an issue when it's literally the story behind this cover. Okay. So we'll have to look into that later on. And, you know, maybe maybe one day we will cover Sergeant Rock 401 just to see how they managed to well this stuff as, in there. As, as I've said, I, I am DC war book geek. I've got all of these books salted away in the basement. I can, I can find 
probably any of these books in question if you gave me five minutes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you're going to have several years before we get to 1985. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, if we even make it there. So you got time. So in these three pages, here's what happens. A German patrol runs headlong into an American patrol. A grenade explodes among them. You know, who knows who dropped it? Maybe you do because of how the grenade looks, but zip it. And only the German officer, Lance Corporal Mueller, survived. He returns to tell his lieutenant and comrades about the incident, but they shun him for his failure, refusing to even acknowledge him. These Germans are harsh to Mueller. He resolves to take on the enemy alone and does so as the pantsless skeleton from the cover. You see, the reason no one was acknowledging him back at base was that he has been dead this whole time. And we get the make no more, or make war no more button in the final panel again. And I think that's at the end of every story here. So there's a story behind the cover, but it's not that much of a story, really. I think it's just another excuse to fill some pages. Joe Kubert does some amazing drawings on these three pages. Oh, and, yeah. you know, and, and we have what they've literally already blown the secret of on the cover with that little memo that, you know, Mueller died two days ago, but he doesn't know it yet. But that, that's the twist ending at the end of these three pages. So I'll give my review which i kind of already did these are three cool looking pages but they did not need to be here yeah the, the great i mean like i said this one the one panel that you're talking about and the cover they're really great because there's this there's a there's a gi who his eyes are popping out of his skull he's like right underneath this guy's feet and he's given you know this the skeletal german a full burst of uh, tommy fire and the bullets are just ripping through him with surprise surprise no effect <laughs> because he's I have a, an effect on his coat. Yeah. That's about it. But it, it, and you know, this, you know, these other G is one of the GI. It looks like he's been previously wounded. His arm is all wrapped up in bandages and he's got this, uh, you know, mouth agape, you know, he's starting to run for his life and everything else. Look on his face. It's, it's a, it's a pretty good panel. The drawings are fantastic. No, there's no doubt about that at all. <laughs> I should mention, though, that this is one of those cases of laziness. This is the exact drawing from the cover. Yeah. This is not a redrawing of the same scene. It is the image transplanted in here with, with um, you know, caption, different captions and lettering and the make war no more button. But the drawings are amazing. There's, I challenge anyone to find a bad Joe Kubert panel or even singular drawing of one individual object. They don't exist. Like the, every panel in this is incredibly cool to look at. The storytelling is great. But this story itself doesn't have much of a purpose other than, hey, we added three pages to that book. <laughs> so, you know, they're not all going to be winners, everybody. So there's some ads, which, again, we'll get to later. And then we move on to the next story, which uh, Rich is going to do the synopsis for because it's a longer story. And I got away with a three-pager. <laughs> I see the way you did that. Okay, well, this next one. It's called The End of the Sea Wolf. This was reprinted from Star Spangled War Stories number 71 back in 1958. And this was drawn yet again by the late, great Joe Kubert. And we've talked ad nauseum about how awesome Joe Kubert's art is. This is a slightly earlier Joe Kubert style, but this is still, it's still Joe Kubert 101. Again, you know, 
you know, the, 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 the smoke from the explosions, the whiskers from the, the uh, U-boat crew that's been, you know, at sea for weeks on end, uh, the, the tension in the, in the panels during the combat scenes. It's, it's, it's Joe Kubert. I mean, Dude, like, like Max, I have, I, it's, I am very, very hard pressed to find bad Joe Kubert art. It does. It just doesn't exist. The skin on Joe Kubert's faces is already in place here. Like his face eyes. Yeah. yeah. Commander. And yeah, it's just, but, uh, it starts off with a, um, appears to be like a merchant ship uh, or a salvage vessel, as, as the case may be. Uh, he's, he's coming out to sea, and he's uh, looking for a, a submerged wreck uh, somewhere underneath the North Sea. It's, uh, let me see here. The, the commander of the salvage vessel was a former U-boat commander, and one of his crew members is all like, hey, you sank this ship that we're here to, here to raise, didn't you? And he's like, uh, yeah, the ship we are raising to remove as a navigational hazard is one of the many that I sank when I commanded the Sea Wolf. And the, sea, and the, command, and the crew member's like, I would be so proud to hear the story of your glorious victory, Captain. So we do that little fade back. and it, It's Capitan. Yeah, Cap, Capitan, yeah, right. So we, we do, the, we, we do the, uh, the flashback. We go back to 1944 or, you know, whenever this uh, U-boat, patrol takes place and the 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 u-boat comes across an allied convoy bringing supplies to britain and it's like hey there's this merchant ship right in front of me this is easy meat i'll just put a torpedo into him and he fires torpedo and the ship turns on a dime and dodges the torpedo it's like he's all like what the tub evaded our torpedo as if it was a man of war with detection devices and destroyer engines, but that's impossible. Surface, we'll blast her with our deck gun. And the crew member says, yeah, well, Capitan. So the sub pops up to the surface and the crew comes out to uh, man the deck guns and uh, engage this, uh, this allied merchantman. It's like, at this range, you cannot miss. Sink that junk ship. So the deck gun starts blasting away and starts blowing holes in the ship. And the, and the, the ship's crew starts lowering lifeboats and abandoning ship and everything. And then all of a sudden, there's an explosion nearby, and the captain's like, we're being fired upon. And it turns out this allied merchantman has a couple of guns on board. It's like, that tub has concealed guns. It's a Q-boat. It's a heavily armed decoy used to destroy U-boats. Like, I'm pretty sure the guys on board would know that, but hey, that's okay. Uh, Prepare to dive. This time, our torpedo will not miss. But before they can dive, one of the deck guns on the Q-ship blows a hole in the sub's hull. And yeah, you can't submerge when you got a big hole hole in your hull like that. So they had to stay on the surface and engage the Q ship with their deck guns. So uh, a surface um, engagement breaks out between the two vessels, between the U-boat's gun crews and the gun crews on the Q on the uh, Q boat. And the U-boat crew's guns are are better. You know, shell after shell sets screaming into the Q boat, but still it stays afloat. But the Q-boat is doing its job because the longer the U-boat is engaged with the Q-boat, that doesn't get too confusing, does it? The U and the U. <laughs> what does the Q stand for? It was just a, it was just like a code word. I don't think it ever really meant anything. I think it was some Q-boats were originally designed during uh, World War One, and they were infinitely more successful in World War One than they were in World War Two. Um, there, that's this is kind of jumping ahead to uh, Killjoy was here. But yeah, World War Two. Okay. World War Two Q-boats didn't work 
they were much more successful during World War One. World War Two, there was like six of them, and one of them got sunk, and they didn't sink any U-boats, so they just said, "Yeah, never mind." So this would have been better as a World War One story. But gotcha. Okay. <laughs> Go for it. So anyway, the the Q-boat is is engaging the U-boat, and the longer they're staying on the surface, duking it out with the sub, the other ships in the Allied convoy are escaping, and it's driving this Q-boat captain out of his mind. How come he can't sink this ship? So finally, you know, all the uh, all the deck guns on the Q-boat on the Q-ship are knocked out. I mean, the Q-ship has gotten a couple of hits in on the sub on its own, but you know, the ammo on board the Q-ship cooks off, and it's you know it's a blaze from stem to stern. And they're all like, okay, great. Let's go after the, uh, let's go after the allied convoy. And then they realize that the ship is on a collision course with the, the U-boat and the captain, the gun crews on the U-boat's deck are, are just blasting away. Aim for the waterline, reverse engine, sink that rusty tub. And then we're back to present day. Yeah. They actually use multiple pictures of El Capitan or Herr Capitan's face, <laughs> like phasing in to bring us back. It's a weird effect that doesn't work. And I, I'm pretty sure I never see Joe Kubert try that again. <laughs> but uh, so the crew member was all like, so what happened then? You know, it didn't reach you. You sank it, right? Herr Capitan. And the captain doesn't say anything. He just goes over to the side of the ship because the pontoons are in place. Start the crane. Now you shall see for yourself the end of the story. And yeah, it's just like, yes, I sank that Q-boat. But before it went down, and then the, the big the three-quarter page panel at the bottom, it took my U-boat with it. You know, the, the Q-boat rammed. Uh, the Sea Wolf and the two vessels sank uh, interlocked to the bottom of the sea. This is where the caption, the end of the Sea Wolf is. It's on the very, very last page with the aforementioned make war no more circle underneath it. And it, again, this is a really, really good artwork on Joe's part because the Q-ship, it's, it's all, looks like it's all covered with like barnacles and seaweed and just jagged holes from the gunfight and everything else. It's, it's, it's a real good piece of mental uh, uh, real good piece of imagery that he put yeah i noticed that it, conclusion, it, conclusion I, of the story. I was just considering like you know it's obvious the q boat was not meant to spend a lot of time underwater so it looks a lot worse for wear than the sea wolf which was built to you know be underwater most of the time so it still looks pretty fresh you know so that's, that was a nice detail on on Kubert's part but again fantastic drawings in every single panel of this and, and you don't know how much time has gone by from the time the ship was sunk to the time that the salvage crew had to go out and get this thing you know out of the navigation lanes or whatever the deal is for why they were hired to, to move the ships so. yeah are we even sure what uh, are we like to, to a point you mentioned before are we even sure what war this happened in you know because the salvage is happening at a certain time but do they ever say when the meeting when this conflict between the q-boat and the u-boat happened the old creepy man simply mentions sometime after world war ii a german salvage vessel steams through the north sea so you're certainly led to believe that this was a that this was supposed to be a world war ii engagement right well we'll save that little yeah statement for the killjoy section because i have something to bring up about that but for me like you know uh, the supernatural element this story doesn't exist as far as me tracking that um and the ending isn't even a surprise because they even talk about how the q boat is turning to ram them so when they bring the ship up the fact that it did it 
is not a surprise. It's, it's drawn like it's supposed to be this great shock and the drawing's amazing, but you already know that this is what happened. So it's not much of a twist ending. There's no supernatural element. Again, for me, this is a story that is only saved by the fact that Joe Kubert did amazing work on it. I particularly like, because I'm a comic book design and craft nerd, I particularly love the fact that a lot of these panels don't have borders. It just gives it a really cool look throughout it. Like a lot of these panels don't have that thick line around them. So that's just, that's a cool look for me. I, I, the drawings themselves are great. And the fact that there's a certain confidence in having the borderless panel that I really like. And it's, it's mostly the flashback panels that don't have the borders. So instead of that fluffy cloud from the fort, which did not return, which is a perfectly fine flashback device to use. They just go for the, the flashback panels don't have a border because they're in the misty haze of time. So I dug that. I like the drawings. The story was not that impressive to me. So let's let's finish poking holes in it and call for Killjoy. Well, like I said, I, I did my heavy Killjoy already talking about, you know, Q-ships were much more effective in World War One than they were in World War II. Uh, there are a few little minor little things. Um, it's it's funny, like you, the last panel with the two ships interlocked and everything, you can see the, the ship's, the sub's name, Seawolf, is is painted on the bow but it, it's it's painted in english it's it's spelled s-e-a space w-o-l-f if this was a german ship it would be would have been one word spelled s-e-e-w-o-l-f <laughs> but that that's your little nitpick stuff um yeah if, you know yeah my big problem with this is they work it in and again this was this was a series cobbled together from reprints like it was somebody's you know somebody's idea to reuse stories to sell another book that's fine but man do some work on your framing sequence like this has the old man who's part of the framing sequence inserted into the first panel as we've mentioned telling the young soldier his story saying sometime after world war ii now the young soldier he's telling this story to was wandering through the woods alone in 1944 so now he's telling this kid a story about the future that just stood out to me like, wait, what? <laughs> so after this story, there's a one-page text piece that we're going to mention called End of a Convoy. Con- End of a Convoy. I can't hardly even say it, and I certainly didn't read it, and neither did Rich. And I don't oh. recommend anyone read these one-page text pieces or however many pages they all ended up being. Well, I mean, I, I did read it just to – How know, dare you? Just to cover it. Well, didn't, you got to cover it, you know? And it, it, it's a hyper-glorified version of the Battle of the Philippine Sea, uh, you know, Allied air power versus Japanese convoy, and we kicked the living snot out of them, and yay us, and moving on to the next story. And there was much rejoicing. <laughs> <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah, these text pieces, I, I don't even think that they're worth doing the research about, but I understand uh, somewhere in my my comic damaged mind, they were put into these comics as like a way to satisfy some kind of shipping requirement or something so they could classify them differently and get a discount on. It's some nonsense. They're in there for no good reason, and they're all bad wherever you find them. So anyway, we're going to move on to the next actual comic book story in here, um, which is called Baker's Dozen. And this one does not have art by Joe Kubert, uh, and yet it is actually really, really good. Um, uh, 
it's it was reprinted from Star Spangled War Stories number 116 from 1964 and the creative team for Baker's Dozen uh the writer's last name is Heron H E R R O N someone I've never heard of um but we have some Irv Novik art here and this stuff is great. I'm a big fan of the guy. Uh, he wasn't someone I knew a lot as a kid. I hadn't seen a lot of his work when I was younger, but I have seen a lot of it now in these days of incredibly easily available reprints and it's, stuff. It's, uh, it's Ed Heron and Irv, and, uh, Irv Novick. Yeah, Ed Heron. That's like, that. when do we ever see that guy again? <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we we say that now, and he's yeah. going to be do like he's going to be in every next, issue of this series. Of the, yeah, <laughs> the next seven issues, he's going to be in at least one of them, and we'll be the jerks, right? Yeah, he's he's going to be the guy that wrote my favorite stories in all these books because I love this story, by the way. So Ed Heron already uh, deserves an apology from me, but Irv Novik does a great job all the time. So, and he does one in this, this story as well. So this one's called again, Baker's dozen and the old man is introducing it at the top. He, he looks kind of tired and sad. The, the way his face is reproduced here, the lines coming down from the corners of his eyes look like tears streaming down his face. I don't think that's intentional. It's actually kind of funny looking, but I'm not hundred percent sure Joe Kubert did the art for that either. So, but yeah, if, if he did, it was just inked badly or reproduced all smudgy you know the printing process was terrible but the old man brings us in with this word balloon baker companies 12-man patrol was the army's toughest and most superstitious ridden superstition ridden but you know i'll let it go superstitious ridden uh their their zero hour was not d-day but friday the 13th when a 13th man joined them to make a blockbuster booby trap adding up to Baker's dozen. That just doesn't flow all that well, despite the fact that I hardly got through that word balloon. But it also kind of blows the plot a little too much. Like, you don't have to be told that this is going to happen. So we have the title Baker's dozen, and then we have a, a splash panel that takes up the rest of the page. And right away, we have something that gets my goat right right there. We have some anti-black cat prejudice going on in this first panel. There's a soldier that's, you know, leaning he's kneeling down on the road, comforting and petting a black cat as a plane drops down and you know onto him and his company and is firing away. And his fellow soldiers are cursing his name. They're like, unlucky 13th jinxed us. He must have flipped to pet that black cat. Yeah, he sure attracted that buzzard to us. And, you know, that's going to get across the main theme of the story right there, which it does a great job for a splash panel. You know, you, you get kind of the gist of the story right there. Um, so, you know, we've got the black cat prejudice. So I'm already kind of pissed off and engaged. And um, hey, uh, Max, why, did, why don't you tell the listeners uh, what kind of pet you have? Oh, I have two cats, you know, <laughs> and, um, you know, I have two female cats, Penny and Calypso. I'm a big pet person. I'm a big cat guy. I'm, I'm just a big animal person. So right away when these soldiers are giving him the business for stopping to pet a cat and blaming him for attracting an enemy plane, 
I'm ready to be like, you know, you know what, buddy, pick up that cat, leave those guys to their fate. So, you know, we get beyond that splash panel. And like I said, it did a great job. I'm already up and I'm ready to go. So the rest of the story is, it goes like this. Before they are sent to check out a nearby town, a 13th soldier is assigned to the most superstitious squad ever. And on Friday the 13th, even, you know, just like the old man said, and we meet the crew, we have Sarge who is wearing a helmet that says Lucky 7 on it. And he introduces some of the rest of his crew as he's complaining about having this 13th person added. We have Horseshoe Jones, Four Leaf Clover Benson, Rabbit Paw Prescott, and Wishbone Wilson. So five of them. And yeah, so like, you know, you couldn't hit this any harder on the nose if you wanted to. Um, And they just kicked number 13 out. They never even call this guy by his name. He's just, you know, the 13th or 13. And, you know, they kick him out, but he is sent back. You know, meanwhile, this uh, Baker company, you know, has has been shelled while approaching the town they were sent to check out. And on the way running back from the shells, a black cat crosses their path. And then 13 rejoins them. And he reveals that he's a demolitions man. And that only makes Sarge angrier. Because he's like, you're a walking bomb. You're going to get us all killed. Like, they're not in a war already, you know. So he makes 13 take point. Of course, 13 stops to pet the cat. So we're back at the splash panel now. And the German plane sees him and goes for the squad. Now, 13 shoots down this plane single-handedly. But the squad still curses him out because some of the debris fell their way and, I don't know, like messed up their hair or something. I'm not incredibly sympathetic to the rest of 13's squad here. Um, 13's nice to cats. He's the good guy. So they keep moving, and 13 decides to rest up against a hay bale in this field. And, of course, that hay bale has a tank hiding inside it, which, you know, good on that tank. That's pretty sneaky. Uh, the, the tank's causing havoc. The squad is cursing out 13 for supposedly uh, triggering the tank. 13 sets fire to the hay with his rifle, and the tank explodes, I guess? The, uh, the hay catches fire. Yeah, he shoots but, it with his but he shoots gun, it, yeah. And the tank goes clanking out, so he's still shooting at the, at the rest of Baker Company, and the burning hay is hanging all over the tank, and it causes the tank to explode, you know, because right. that happened all the time. <laughs> right. So, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that, I bet. But uh, the squad still accuses 13 of trying to kill them with a flaming tank bomb or something, even though he, again, just single-handedly saved their bacon. So they, they move him to another position. They keep moving him around because they think that'll solve the problem. They move 13 to the right flank, and they're going through the town, and he panics you know, I'll give them this. He shoots a mirror in a doorway Then he mistakes for an enemy soldier. So, you know, the superstitious squad, of course, they're talking about seven years, bad luck and all that. And just another way 13's putting their lives at risk. So they move him to the rear of the squad and a German paratroop uh, detachment or whatever you call them, a bunch of German paratroopers with 12 shoots in a tank, adding up to the number 13 is dropped down. Now the squad assumes this is also somehow 13's fault like he's the only one that that this passing paratrooper you know force could have possibly seen so 
while they're panicking, you know, and scattering, 13 backs into a cab, like, you know, a car on the road with the license plate 13-13, you know, again, subtlety. And he, he gets in, he drives it straight at the tank. Now, his good friends in the squad, they, you know, the actual uh, word balloons are, look, the jinx is sacrificing himself for us. And the other ones are like, he ain't so bad. So yeah, we're, now that balloon with like the three or four arrows coming off and like yeah. the rest of the squad saying it in chorus, he's not so bad. Yeah, he ain't so <laughs> bad. He's going to die for us. You know, finally something useful. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> then 13, yeah, he jumps out of the cab before the, before it runs into the tank and the squad decries his cowardice and goes right back to whining and cursing his name. But then, you know, the fact that the charges that 13 left in the cab explode and the tank is destroyed, you know, because th they seem to have forgotten he was carrying a ton of explosives on him. So again, he saves their bacon. Presumably, they can handle the paratroopers because after that, you know, after the tank is destroyed by 13's exploding car, the squad accepts him and everything is fine, you know, with these bunch of jerks. And the story is over. So, you know, that make is... War, no more. Yeah, we have our make war no more <laughs> button. And at the bottom, we have another one of these house ads that I love that takes up the bottom third of the page. Bigger and better. One to startle you. Only 25 cents on sale July 20. And it's an issue of Justice League America uh, with Solomon Grundy on the cover. Just making short work of the assembled heroes. And it is one of those crossover issues with the JLA and the Justice Society. This isn't a thing I'd become aware of until some early 80s issues of the JLA with you know some George Perez art in them. But it's just one of my favorite things in this era of DC comics is when the JLA would meet the JSA. So I get a pretty big charge out of that. Um, so I like the story. I like the Irv Novik art. Uh, let's, let's get into what you thought about it before we call, uh, we call Killjoy back, uh, back yeah. to the front lines. Well, there was um, just jumping into the, uh, the slight uh, historical perspective aspect of this uh, uh, first is uh, the phonetic alphabet actually changed after World War II. You know, now it starts uh, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Echo, Foxtrot, yada, 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 yada. But back then, it was Abel, Baker, Charlie, Dog, Easy, Fox, yada, 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 yada. So actually, Easy. You know, okay, all right. So actually, the Baker's Dozen in the title is actually a cute multi-tiered play on word. Uh, Baker's Dozen, 13, you know. So that was actually quite clever if you <laughs> if you want to play that way yeah things uh, that don't quite survive the decades but yeah, you know rich is here to help out yeah because you'd have to know about the, the phonetic alphabet changing you know again the sergeant rock crowd would probably is obviously well familiar with the whole nothing is easy and easy comment but i'm not really sure how well that would work now nothing nothing echoes an echo i, I don't know give me a minute <laughs> um yeah but as far as killjoy was here Oh my God! Where do you start? I mean, I I could I could you know probably find something on each each single page, you know, of this story, but I'm not going to do that. Um, I already ridiculed the uh, the the uh, the tank exploding, you know, after driving through a flaming hay hay uh, haystack. I'm like, you know, what was the tank made out of? Balsa wood. But uh, the the one thing I'll point out is. Um, the the first thing that uh, number thirteen did was he he shot down a low strafing. Uh, a German fighter 
with this with his with his Tommy gun. The man was a hero. Yeah, it was like I said. I mean, it's just because yeah, that happened all the time. And I always love these 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 panels where it's just like you know we know you you know comics are escapism and you know you know the laws of physics don't apply. Cough cough. Captain America's shield. Cough cough. But if this guy was coming in as hard and as fast as he was coming at the angle that he was coming in on these guys at, this guy wouldn't have had to have shot him down. He would have plowed into the ground. <laughs> he would have plowed into the ground on his own. It was just there's there's all I guess there's all kinds of just little things like that. But that's what makes war comics fun, isn't it? You know, it's the good the good guys the good guys win, the bad guys die. Let's move on and make war no more. So yeah, there's there's at least as much realism in a story like this as there was in like the war movies of the time or maybe the decade before you know like the, you didn't come to this stuff for for the incredible accuracy so yeah i mean like i i, I could say a few other things but we'll just you know we'll just uh, let it be and just move on yeah i gotta ask you one thing before we move on to the the final right. piece of this book um did they ever ever try to hide a tank in a pile of hay it's camouflage i would yep. you know, I, would, I would imagine they would have done that all the time because because the, the whole thing would it's um gets cover 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 and concealment it, you know concealment hides you from the from the eyes of the enemy cover hides it actually protects you from from enemy fire now help now a haystack isn't going to protect you from enemy fire but it will keep enemy eyes off of you i mean at this at this stage of the war Allied air power. The the Allies ruled the skies. I mean, yeah. the Germans had no shortage of problems. You know, moving stuff from point to point. You know, by this time of the war, because our our aircraft was were everywhere. So this this tank was probably just hiding in a haystack just to avoid from being obliterated from the, by an Allied fighter bomber or something. Yeah, and it's literally just waiting for some Americans to try to cross this field. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that is that is possible. That the, for me, not knowing you know the the nitty gritty of the military history, I was like, did they just say we're going to stick this tank in a bale of hay and hope someone walks by here? I mean, I understand they probably know that this town is at a strategic point that's likely to be investigated. Haystack, but yeah, but yeah, it would have, yeah, I mean, it would, it would have made sense. You know, this was a defensive war at this point. They would have been doing ambushes and stuff like that. So, yeah, I did get invested in the story though. I, obviously I, I was on 13 side from panel one. I hated all these dudes, even though they were on the side of the good guys in the war. I just wanted at least one of them to get an arm blown off or something you know you could play the the old infamous oh this is the you know the freaking new guy he's the replacement he doesn't know anything he were, he were just replaced johnny that just got both of his legs blown off when he stepped on a landmine yeah. you know all the built-in animosity towards the new guy that you just yeah. instantly assume doesn't know anything and they just took the shorthand of superstition which allowed all these ridiculous convenient like uh, coincidences to happen but again the irv novick art i love it. it it there's there's similarities between him and don heck to me and that Irv, um, and at least maybe whoever's inking here too, does a lot of these sketchy, feathery lines that other people, you know, if they do it, it looks rushed. But when, you know, Irv and someone like Don Heck does it, it just gives things this, you know, this more immersive kind of realistic look that I really dig. The, the, the drapery of the uniforms, the expressions on the faces. Um, you know, obviously Joe Kubert's in this book, so he is the best artist in the book. But man, there's, there's no sneezing at this stuff. This is great comic book art, page design, everything. It's just really good. And 
Killjoy stuff aside, this was my favorite actual story in the book. And uh, then, then we're going to go on to our framing sequence. The end of the story, the end of the book is called You Must Go. But again, dun, dun, dun. it's not really a title. <laughs> it's, it's just something the old man is saying in the first panel of these final two pages. This is just a two-page framing sequence. That's all we've got left here. And there's a shot of the house that the young soldier from the beginning has wandered to, and now he's healed up a little more from listening to these stories, and God knows how many others he's had through. You know, there's a nighttime shot of the exterior, and you see the word balloons. It has been many hours since you arrived, and the night is almost gone, and so are my stories. Soon, dawn will be here. You must go. And an all bold lettering. Yeah. You must and, go. So you know the, the the young man takes his takes his leave, and I want to draw one thing here that I didn't bring up, and the fort which did not return. But this is the second time it happens in here, so I guess it's just something that 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 they did in in older comics, and maybe just in older writing. When the young soldier is leaving, he's waving back toward toward the old man's house, and he says goodbye, thank you. And the old man says goodbye. Perhaps we shall meet again. But each time they say goodbye, there's no e at the end. It's G double O D B Y. And earlier, when the bombardier is bailing out of you know the mother hen. He says goodbye to the mother hen, and they write it without the E. Now, that's, I'm an English major. That just stands out to me, and I've never seen that before as far as I know in my life. So I don't know if that's something you've noticed. You read a lot of older war comics than me. Is that just is that something that's ever stood out to you? Well, I noticed it, you know, reading the comic. I didn't, you know, put anything, you know, I didn't apply a whole lot of thought to it, honestly, because, you know, language evolves with time and stuff like that. You know, two words become one word, you know, the, the word the letter at the end drops off you know a hyphen disappears you know language evolves um i honestly couldn't tell you i always i always spelled it with a knee i've seen it usually spelled with a knee at the end uh yeah i <laughs> yeah because honestly when i first saw it in that first panel I read it mentally for a split second as Goodby. Like, <laughs> is he calling Mother Hen Goodby? Like, are you a good doobie or something? But then I realized he's saying goodbye to the plane. And then later I'm like, well, that's probably just a typo. And then here it's twice in one panel. So anyway, that you know, Rich is going to be a killjoy for the military and historical stuff. And I'm probably going to do that for grammatical, you know, and, and, and spelling errors and things like that. Cause Hey, I got to use that degree for something. So the young guy leaves, he's been there for several hours and is apparently healed enough to get the heck out of the house. Now. He hits the trail. He's wandering through the still darkness shrouded misty woods, even though the sun is, a, you know, is approaching and he comes across a villager gathering firewood and he says, you old there, hack. Yeah, old hack, you say that, but I, I took a note when I saw this panel. I imagined him going, old woman. And then I imagined the old woman saying, man, <laughs> that is exactly what this looks like. It looks like Eric Idle from Monty Python's Holy Grail when King Arthur rides up on a peasant doing some drudge work on the side of the road. He's got this, you know, cloaked. Oh, 
Oh, we got some lovely filth down here. Right. We're so, both Money Python fans, probably going to be dropping some Python-esque humor here and there. <laughs> I mean, but this just, it was impossible not to make the connection. I was, I was almost going to like say, when did the Holy Grail come out and when was this book published, you know? About the same time period. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, old woman, man. And so, you know, the, the young soldier who doesn't have a name, nobody has any names in this book, um, says, you there, which way to the road? And, you know, the, the, the old person says, straight ahead, but where did you come from? And he's like, oh, just the cottage behind me where the old man lives. And, uh, of course, the villager is shocked and says, no one lives in that house, not now. Many years ago during the First Great War, so we do have finally a reference to which war is which here, a man lived in that house. A shell landed on it and killed the man on the very last morning of the war. The young, the young soldier's like, that's impossible. And he turns around, and of course, the house is right there. You know, like, we get the impression he's been wandering away for a while, but it's still just right back there. And it's just a blasted foundation with a few timbers sticking out of the ground. There's nothing left of it. Yeah, the, the, the smokestack, you know, a couple other, you know, like, corner beams, and the rest of it's just rubble. And he has this look of, huh? Yeah, and you we know, get the shock on his face. We get the ending caption, 1944, winter. A wounded soldier hobbles down a road. Behind him, he has left the dark woods and heads toward the war. And we have the Make War No More button. We have the next issue on sale on or about September 23rd. I love that, on or about. Like, this is comic books. Let's not try to be too specific here. You know? well, but the funny thing is, if, if you look at that, at that uh, tagline, it looks like the font changes you know, to next issue on, on or about September 23rd. So it's like whenever they decided to, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, incorporate this story into the book or something like that. Or maybe this came from something else. Yeah. We're just going to just you know, put our little you know, green white out on here and just type in a new date. It really, yeah, it does look like some kind of paste up shenanigans because the rest of that line is in bold and then the date is in very almost faint looking normal typeface. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that's a good catch there that um, they were just like, "Ah, I don't know, this date. And then they went, nope, tape this one down over because these are old comics. This stuff was done literally by taping things and gluing them to the page and pasting them up and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's that's tacked right on. So that that's the end of the actual content, you know, the story content for Weird War Tales number one. We have begun our journey, but that's only part of the fun of reading old comics. We've got advertisements in here, people. That, as anyone who's a fan of old, you know, old comic books knows, is at least half the fun of going back through them. So I want to hit a few of them. And, um, you know, Rich, you can bring up ones as you page through. And, you know, the one right on the inside of the front cover is just one of those ads you saw a ton of these kinds of things. It was like, sell some garbage and turn in your receipts for these junk prizes. And, you know, God knows how many of these there were, but this was called the Sales Leadership Club. And I finally read the fine print, not the fine print, but even just the details. Because as a kid, I just looked at all the prizes and went, wow, those look cool. And then I moved on with- that tape recorder player, if I sell 18 boxes of blah. Yeah, I didn't even know what they were asking you to sell. 
Like I was just looking at the prizes and I went, those look neat. And then I moved on with my life because I had a comic book to read, you know, but as I found out digging into this ad, you were supposed to sell boxes of Christmas cards to your friends and relatives. Not only that, but this ad specifically says you are going to sell people actual Christmas cards. Like these aren't make-believe fake Christmas cards. These aren't phony. These don't say happy holidays or whatever. These are actual Christmas cards. And so you were supposed to, you know, foist these off on your family to try to get like a musical birdcage jewelry box, you know, or whatever else these prizes are. Wonder wristwatch. Yeah, just horrible stuff. Like, you know, this the sales leadership club, I think I wrote down a few of these dumb prizes oh. that you could get. Like, yeah, there was a cadet sleeping bag that I think you should check out to see if they got that right. Now, one of the things I noticed a disparity of is you could get a gas-powered Honda ATC for selling six boxes of these Christmas cards, right? So this thing is gas powered it's an all-terrain vehicle although it says atc i'm not sure why it doesn't say atv other than it's probably oh. three inches high yeah that, it would almost have to be that because you know all you need to do to get this thing is sell six boxes yeah. meanwhile the prize right next to it which is the bike radio horn light combo you need to sell 12 boxes right i i wrote so, down like, as a contrast there's a high riser fun bike, which is just a kid's bike. And that's 24 boxes. So, you know, there's, there's that disparity right there. So immediately I'm like, I need to know what the deal is with this, with this Honda thing. And then my, one of my favorites, it's almost there. Like I feel on purpose, you can get a snare drum and cymbal for 12 boxes. So then you can get it and you can do your own rim shot. You know, like this, uh, so, so that was one of my favorites was like, right when you open the book, you well, got that ad. The, well, the, the one thing that, you know, as I'm, as I'm listening to you and I'm looking at the prizes and stuff like that, you know, the, the placement of this ad is actually, it's the worst possible place in the book because the business reply mail coupon that you have to cut out to send with it it's on the inside cover of the comic book which that is an excellent point yeah. you are cutting off literally about a quarter of the cover of this comic book and i would be like no i'm not going to cut off a cover a corner cover of my comic book <laughs> maybe like an inside page or something like that especially if it doesn't affect a story and as, as you know going back and collecting old back issues of war comics i hate you know buying a book and flipping through it and seeing someone cut out a coupon, and especially if it cuts into a story. And I'm like, oh, I mean, to me, that means I need to find another one of these comics and replace this piece of garbage because I don't know what happened there. So that would, you know, that would have really affected my ability to participate in these little programs if I had to <laughs> cut a, a quarter of the cover of the comic book. <laughs> yeah, just, uh, that's a great point. Just incredibly bad placement. And the Sales Leadership Club, everybody, was based in Springfield, Massachusetts. Now, I've lived near Springfield, Massachusetts, and I got to tell you, um, this seems like something that would be based out of Springfield, Massachusetts. It's, you know, that's, they're, they're probably still active coming from there. Now, the next ad we run across is for something I never played. I never saw. I didn't know what the heck to make of this ad. Something called Skittle Baseball. It's like a little tabletop baseball game with a ball attached to a pole. Looks like a tether ball. Just insane. It, it made me think of like, God, the things that we would play with in the 70s and be perfectly happy. Well, even the logo for Skittle Baseball 
is just screams 1970s. It's, it's a it's all block letters, and the top half of it is star spangled blue, and the bottom half of it is white and red stripes. It's all so shriekingly patriotic. Yeah, it's America's pastime. Apparently, slapping a plastic ball on a on a cheap chain at your friend who was waiting to slap it back at you while you're about to break this toy. Like from Aurora, who did all those those um you know model kits that everyone's super nostalgic about. But I bet nobody still has one of these things. Just, 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 just the paragraph that's underneath it is good for a laugh. It's like you'd call it skittle baseball because that's what it is. Skittle baseball is just like baseball. Oh, you play it the skittle way. One player pitches the ball. Then a player tries to hit it into the outfield for a single or double or homer or maybe an out. Skittle baseball. It takes big league skill to win from Aurora, where fun is the name of the game. <laughs> I I want you to read that ad copy to anyone who tries to call you on the phone. That's, 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 that's I love the you'd call it Skittle baseball because that's what it is. <laughs> And you'd call it that dummy because you call things what they are. You know, that's, I love the copywriting in these things. So Skittle Baseball, I am now uh, determined to figure out what the hell. You, you need to go to a, onto eBay once we, once we conclude, uh, conclude this session and see if you can find Skittle Baseball. <laughs> the next time we see each other, we're, we're playing this damn game. <laughs> so we, we page through the issue and there's a bunch of other stupid ads. I don't want to, dwell on everyone but like finish high school at home there's a haunted house record get a bag of coins here's a bag of random coins you dummy send away for this you know but then we get to this two-page spread of something that haunted me when i saw it it was scarier than anything in the actual stories it was now yours from columbia at truly great savings any eight tapes or records for only 398 yes Columbia House is in here and, and they're selling not just eight tapes, but you can take your pick between eight tracks, tape cassettes, reel to reel tapes, or 12 inch LP records. They were Columbia House was selling people reel to reel audio tapes. Like, uh, at best, you're going to run into people our age now that remember these guys as the people who were hawking cds that you could never stop the subscriptions to but here we have god knows when they got started but this has to be the beginning or close to it because they look, were they mentioned eight track cartridges and stuff too. yeah because it's the yeah. 70s because everyone eight, eight tracks was where it was at in the 70s yeah i mean like uh, we had the, our, the cars in our family throughout different members of the day there were eight track players in those cars man but like the real to real is what stuns me. <laughs> the the fact that you could order that from Columbia House just stood out to me. And and the albums are just you zoom in on these albums and they're just a, a journey into uh into madness. Like there's a there's a Jim Neighbors album on here called Everything is Beautiful. I need it. I need to find that on YouTube at least and listen to that. Jim Neighbors everything is beautiful we need that record that is the record we need in these times so you get the columbia house thing you get the something else i'd never heard of the supersonic power line from kenner these are these friction powered race cars where you'd like put a strip 
into like a gyro and pull it back and send your car racing a car. I had a toy like this when I was a kid, but it was the evil Knievel cycle that you'd, you'd rev him up, you know, either in this grinder or like just pull a strip through the bike and he would run across the room and smash into the wall, just like he would in real life. These are the toys you torment your, your, your dog and your cat with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's like this whole line of SSP, Kenner racers. They couldn't have lasted that long because I don't remember these being an option. Like I said, I had the evil Knievel thing, um, but that was literally the only toy I had that worked like that. And, you know, how did, did you ever hear of these things or just you were just aware of like these kinds of toys um, and that's it? Been too long at this point. Yeah. Um, I might have had one of these floating around in my, in, in my toy box that don't look horribly familiar. Yeah, I'd actually go out on a limb and say probably not. I don't. I don't yeah. think. When later on in the issue, we have one of those. One of those. Um, you know, buy a page full of gag ads. Um, you know, page full of gags, and I, I'm going through them again, and you know, this is the classic one with like you know the gum that you know will leaves make your tongue black or whatever. Yeah, leaves your tongue black. But I'm going through the ad, and I'm starting to notice like. A, a trend here and i made a little list of these things yeah it's the honor house production corporation i believe is what they're called like i actually looked at what they were called now again because i didn't look at the company name when i was a kid but some of these gags on the page there's x-ray specs there's a spy scope there's c behind glasses and a manual on how to learn hypnotic control so you know the creepy perverted stalker starter kit. Like it's just disturbing to see like, Oh, it's like, Oh my God, that's, that's just like the date rape starter kit. Just, just, ah, oh, the seventies man, just right there on one page. So you get past that and we get to the, for me, there's two big ads that I want to talk about. Um, and one of them is right after the last story page and there's a link here to something that that you know we've talked about a bit is there's a link here i guess tangentially to russ heath because this isn't his work on this ad but i think he was he was very um you know he was very famous in comic book circles for being the guy who drew those ads for those little cardboard footlockers of plastic soldiers you could send away for either roman soldiers or World War II or Civil War, and the drawings looked amazing, and you ordered the Foot Locker, which I actually did for one of them because the drawing was so incredibly cool, and the box was crap, and the soldiers were paper-thin plastic. They weren't even three-dimensional. They were awful. So we have an ad for something like that here. We have a split ad, two different sets. One is called Tank Trap, and the other is called Cannonball. So we have like what looks like a World War II set, of soldiers and then we have like a civil war set you know it says cannonball and it says here this game is dedicated to the fighting heroes of chickamauga the blue and the gray you know and so again like this is the first time i saw one of these ads that didn't have i believe that those incredibly famous um russ heath drawings yeah it's not as it's not as art arts is Looks like they even got different artists for the uh, for the World War II uh, display and the Civil War display. I mean, I, I oh like, yeah, the World I War II like, artist is much better. Oh, yeah, much much better. But the, the, that's a funny thing too. You're looking at the coupon for this stuff, and it's from 
Helen of Toy. I'm like, oh, geez. That was my favorite part of the ad. Yeah, right there. Points for, for pun damage. Right That's there. the only good part of this ad. The Civil War <laughs> art is so bad. The guys look like they're having a blast. It's the lead soldier that's closest to the, the viewer. Oh, yeah. It just looks like he's having a great time. Oh, yeah. He's, he's got that creep show smile and everything else like that. It's like, hey, Timmy, do you want to get into the ice cream truck with me? <laughs> yeah, just just not good. And, you know, $1.50 to be incredibly disappointed by these things. But so, so there's that. It, was, it stood out to me in that I didn't realize anyone else ever drew ads for these little footlockers of crappy soldiers and then – you know, I was, <laughs> I realized how lucky I was that I had seen the much better art for those ads when I was a kid. But we get, to me, the star ad in this book is on the back cover. Now, do you want to read some of the copy for this? Or do you want well, me to dive into this, man? Because this, this was my, my, my favorite think, ad. Well, it's, it's, um, it's an ad for one of those groove uh, race car flat tracks that I think just about every boy had you know, late seventies, early eighties, God knows I had one, but it's called a fat track and it shows, you know, your, your new Indy Eagle and your new March formula one race cars and Camaro Trans Am and Firebird Trans Am and Sizzler's cars running on fat track, all the excitement of real racing. That's kind of hard to believe. <laughs> yeah, were these cars just, these were just like hot wheels type cars, right? You just sort of, yeah, they, were, they, were, they were about, the same, they were about the same size. And there would be it would be like a like almost like a like a tongue and groove. There'd be a, there'd be like a needle that would stick out the nose of the car that would sit into a groove that was on the track. If this is the same type of track that I'm thinking of, um, and you would have um, you know you plugged in the electricity and you have the little box on the side and you you know with the accelerator and the cars just go zipping around and around and around and around. And so it's like know, a, but, this is like slot cars. I, yeah, I I'm thinking I, I, of a I, I think that's yeah. That's what this reminds me of. Yeah. You know, uh, High-speed cornering on banked curves, sizzlers fighting for the lead on straightaways, three cars wide. Race your own sizzlers or one of these four new models on Fat Track Sizzlers. Fat Track, it's big, black, fat, and fast from Mattel. <laughs> yes, it certainly is. That, you're going to have me do all these voiceovers, aren't you? Because you're just Yes. You're gonna, you're gonna, if, I, if I really enjoy the hell out of some ad copy, you are going to be the one to read it. Because, man, that's what won it for me is not only is it just fat track, Sizzler's fat track, you know, but the tagline right there in the ad is it's big, black, fat, and fast. And you missed one part. Oh, I missed that in, one on purpose. In the I middle. that one for you. Yeah, <laughs> not only is it big, black, fat, and fast, but the track itself is called out for having a big O layout for Sizzler's owners. This will give you the big O and it's big, black, fat, and fast. Like that can't have been an accident any of that <laughs> so that you know as as high points go so to speak uh as climaxes go i'll say that's that's yeah that's a good one to end on so looking back on weird war tales number one i enjoyed it um i'm I'm, I'm digging getting into these early issues to see what this book was like way before i encountered it you know, a good seven years before my time with the book began. Um, I got to say, it's it's even more different than I was expecting, uh, you know, because by the time I ran into the book, 
my first cover had a straight up dinosaur lifting a boat out of the water and shaking soldiers out of it like you know like for fun and and nothing like that happening in this book just yet i mean granted these are reprints from old stories there's some implied ghost shenanigans going on in the framing sequence um so there's a little bit of that supernatural working in i liked it i liked the art more than any of the stories baker's dozen was the winner for me that got top marks overall you know like i said um the the art and every story here was incredible uh there's just a murderous row of of kick-ass talent in this book so I'm, I'm just hoping that as once we get past the seven issues of reprint material that we kick in the octane on the story end so so yeah well you, you gotta also remember I, I think that there were time periods in the later in the 70s where there would just be breaks in the action and there might be the odd book you know like episode you know 23 you know might be an all reprint volume and issue 52 53 and 54 might be all reprint volumes or something it just all depended i seem to recall that when i was uh reviewing these books when i was as i was reading them there was a bunch of these books that were all um just like issues like one through seven that were all uh reprints but you know you know We'll deal with it as as we as we. Can. Well, yeah. When we looked into it, the first seven issues of this book, it was mostly cobbled together reprint material until it ended up. You know, the sales numbers came in, and whoever was in charge of this project, if this was Kubert's baby or somebody else's, they were given the go ahead to um, you know have a budget to actually get some more new material, make the book all new. So they had to prove themselves first. This book was just filling a slot on the stands and the publishing schedule, and you know, and 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 I'm glad they 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 did it because this became for five years straight one of my can't miss books once I encountered it in '78. I, I read read it from 78 right till it ended so i'm 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 really pleased with how good this book was how well it held up and i'm I'm looking forward to diving into number two so do you have any final comments uh no i I think um i think we're okay actually i think you know you know as uh as you know like i said you know i I love the cubert stuff i don't know if i had a like a true like favorite story i mean i honestly if i had to choose between you know the the sea wolf story or the uh, the fort which did not return i would probably lean uh towards the fort uh fort story you know because i've, I've always I, you know i've always loved the b17 in and of itself um i've been up in one uh, i had a great uncle that flew 32 missions in one uh out of italy during world war ii and you know got all of his stories and stuff like that it's a marvelous plane yeah so i I'd probably have to say the fort which did not return would, would probably be Oh yeah, that's that's easily better than the Sea Wolf. Like I said, the Sea Wolf just doesn't even have a surprise at the end. It's it there's nothing to it. And with the fort, you've got incredible Russ Heath art. You've got some implied supernatural shenanigans. Um, It's just a personal attachment. But like, it's just a much better story. But man, yeah. it's you didn't pick the correct story because the Baker's dozen has a cat in it, so it wins. So that's that. That is the final I'm a verdict. Dog guy, dude, you know that. That's the, <laughs> that's the final verdict, and I'm gonna do the editing, so that's where it'll stand. So until next time, people. This has been the Weird Warriors podcast with Max and Rich. We've covered Weird War Tales number one. We're gonna do it again. So until next time, make war no more.